you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed podcast brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation and a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. We bring you community discourse about amazing organizations and people who come together to help make Edmonton strong. Every month, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and communities intersect. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This month, we find out how the Terra Centre is integrating Indigenous cultural learning so their staff can offer better support for young parents. And we learn how Alberta Helping Animal Society is supporting vulnerable Edmontonians by providing care for their companion animals. But first, we hear how a scholarship that was set up in memory of Don Snyder is helping FolkFest volunteers pursue their post-secondary education and more. Don Snyder was an integral part of the team that produces Edmonton Folk Music Fest every August in Gallagher Park. If you attended the festival between 1991 and 2012, Don played a crucial role in helping you make some of your favorite summer memories. As the festival's production manager, Don was responsible for overseeing the physical site of the festival. That included coordinating the stage and tent builds, lighting and sound systems, the beer gardens, and so much more. To the FolkFest team, he was a friend, mentor, and pillar of the FolkFest community. So after Don passed away from cancer in 2012, FolkFest set up a scholarship in his memory. The Don Snyder Go Wildly Forward Scholarship provides financial support to FolkFest volunteers pursuing post-secondary education goals. To learn more about the Don Snyder Go Wildly Forward Scholarship, I spoke with Linda Brenneman Snyder. Well, my name is Linda Brenneman Snyder, and I'm the widow of Don Snyder. And uh, I am happily on the committee for his scholarship as well. And Terry Wickham. Yes, my name is uh, Terry Wickham, and I've been with the Folk Festival since 1989. Uh, I guess my job is as producer, and I'm the general manager. I say I get to plan the party, and I get to pick the records. Now, just a quick production note before we get started. I actually sat down with them separately at different times, but we've brought their voices together to help tell this story. Uh, So we are here to chat about the Don Snyder Go Wildly Forward Scholarship. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about Don and who he was to you? Well, well, he was my everything, wasn't he? Um, Don, we met, um, I think it was this winter of 91, and he was coming in as the production, the new production manager. And uh, Don took the reins of the production of that festival and literally turned it around. He brought it up to a standard of safety and efficiency that uh, I think is second to none this day. Don was a very good friend of mine. I I met him in 1985 when we both started at the uh, Jack Singer Concert Hall, Um, and we shared a house, so we, we got to know each other quite well, and, you know, friends and parties. I knew he was from Edmonton, uh, he grew up here. Uh, he went to Vic Comp, which had a big influence on him. He has friends from that school to, to this day. There's still a group that uh, we'd get together. It's it's an amazing, it was an amazing journey for him. He, uh, from there, I don't know, he was out on the road representing bands. Uh, he, he worked at the Jack Singer in Calgary, and from there he came up here. He, you know, moved back to Edmonton. To do the folk festival, you know, he has uh, two daughters here and uh, grandchildren. Um, so he's got deep roots in the community, having gone to school here. The, the funny thing is he was actually born in Calgary, which he wouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> and for a public figure, he was actually very private. You know, you could 
you know, you could share a house with him and you wouldn't know if he had a girlfriend. You know, he was that kind of way. And yet he was very open, especially during his long struggle uh, with cancer. He was, uh, it was, he was very open and very brave. What, what sort of attracted you to Don? He, his energy, his passion, his love of people, the feeling that you, you meant something to him. That, those are all things that I found wonderful about him. I, I really admired his energy and his enthusiasm and his fairness and his love of people. I don't know. It just it was part of his personality. You couldn't help but get become part of that community if you were around him because he was that kind of person. He just welcomed you and you felt important and away you went. So, you know, he where his office is, he used to intercept people coming in. You know, they'd be coming in to volunteer, and he'd be interviewing them almost and trying to divert them to the site crew before they got into the general <laughs> population, if he liked them. So he loved to talk. He talked even more than I do, which is a lot. So he was just a great character. So he built that kind of volunteer base that we have. Again, we're going back where our volunteer base has grown from 800 to 2,700. So, you know, Don was responsible for a lot of that growth on site. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what Don was responsible for as production manager on the grounds? Well, he was responsible first and foremost for the site, you know, all the stages, where they are, uh, myself and himself, and with lots of other input designed where everything is. So, and you know, anything that happened, he built the whole town. He was like the mayor of that town, you know, while it's being constructed and taken down. He had a perfect safety record. No one, there was no serious injuries under his uh, leadership. You know, he loved the festival, he loves Edmonton, he loved the community of it, he loved the spirit of it, and he really believed in making a difference in one person's life. Can you tell us uh, about the scholarship and how the scholarship came about? Well, actually, it was Terry Wickham that raised the idea of the scholarship. I'm not quite sure about that. I would think it probably came about from Linda Brenneman Snyder. So when the scholarship came up, we thought that was, I thought it was a wonderful idea. He wanted to do something special, something that would resonate about Don Snyder. So I guess a couple of things, his desire to learn and see other people learn to tell stories and the go wildly forward part is, is to not limit yourself. Actually, the whole thing is go wildly forward in a general direction. <laughs> so that gives you quite a bit of leeway. <laughs> But it doesn't mean that you go wildly forward and you don't know where you're going. It just means enjoy. Just uh, get out there and experience life. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he loved. So, you know, that was just one of the things he'd say. Let's go wildly forward, you know, into the great unknown or whatever. You know, that's just, just a saying. So then it became, and there's kind of pictures of it and people have drawings of it. And, it, you know, it just became a thing. So I think it was kind of Linda's idea, and then within the organization, we brought it forward, talked about it, and said, okay, if we're going to support this, how much money do we have to set aside in the endowment to support this? And that's that's what we did. And I think it's grown to about you know $12,000 a year, so it's kind of split usually between two people, sometimes a third. It was make a difference in someone's life. It's not based on academics. It's based on... Uh, he just believed in the education. He particularly believed in people just wanting to further themselves in education. So it's as much for your community involvement and everything you've done and who you are, as well as, you know, making sure that you're maintaining the academic standards. The scholarship is for Folk Fest volunteers. Uh, that's one of the criteria uh, for applications. I was just wondering, how would you describe Folk Fest's volunteer uh, community? How would you describe the population of Edmonton? 
you know, they come from all walks of life, from surgeons to, you know, social workers to people who are unemployed, people who, uh, you know, have uh, certain disabilities, um, amazingly talented, um, you know, I call it the most functional, um, you know, family. Their family, you know, there's many people that have been there since day one and their their families have grown up there and uh, I think we've all grown old together. <laughs> it, is a, it is a family. The secret is to respect people, to care about them, to make sure they're happy in their job, uh, to make people feel they're a part of the larger picture, not just some cog in the wheel. Um, while some families don't get along, this one does. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this one works at at those things that make a family tick, respect and honoring what has gone before and hopefully what's going to be in the future. Thanks, Linda Brenneman-Snyder and Terry Wickham for chatting with us about the Don Snyder Go Wildly Forward Scholarship. This year's Folk Fest runs from August 9th to 12th and Edmontonians can expect another stellar lineup. If you're still on the fence about whether to attend this summer's Folk Fest, here's Terry Wickham again with what he's most excited about this year. Um, there's a great African program with, you know, Trio de Cali and Sona Jabarte. Uh, there's a really good Celtic program. So there's a lot of depth in among the 65 artists. You know, on a headliner basis, well, Ry Cooter, I think it was uh, Rolling Stone, named him eighth best guitarist of all time. That's pretty good. Just, I would say this, if, if someone hasn't tried it, come on down and try it. You might be surprised, you know, the word folk scares some people off, but you come down and you see, you know, artists from 14 different cultures. When we're going, there's six different stages going. If you don't like Celtic music on that stage, you might like the gospel over there, or the bluegrass over there, or the singer-songwriters over there. You can see the full lineup and get your tickets at edmontonfolkfest.org. What's next, Elizabeth? Terra Centre works with teen moms and dads to help them develop skills and self-reliance they need to be successful parents. Karen Mottershead is the executive director of Terra. You may remember her from episode five when she joined us to talk about how the centre empowers young parents by offering them community support and a wide range of services. Karen is back along with Nicole Van Kuppeveld to talk about Terra's initiative to integrate Indigenous cultural learning and development for their staff and for teen parents. That's right. As we'll hear, more than 50% of the parents Terra Centre works with identify as Indigenous. The centre has made a commitment to better understand how culture and ceremony can help build community for young parents. And they hope that this learning, with an understanding of Canada's history, can help Terra staff, board and leadership included, offer better support to parents. As you can imagine, it's no small task. Lisa Pruden sat down with Nicole and Karen to learn about Terra's approach to Indigenous cultural learning. So let's start with you, Karen. Could you tell us a bit about Terra's Indigenous cultural learning program? Okay, so our Indigenous Cultural Learning Program actually has been a work in progress for a number of years, but more recently we feel that we've made some good advances where we've been able to uh, dedicate staffing resources to really uh, embrace this and dedicate uh, time and resources to moving it forward. And, and I think uh, Nicole, who's really taken the lead on this over the last year, is, is probably in a better position and to speak to the, the different elements that we've embedded into the organization. So um, there, I think there's like five key ones. We have our elder in residence, Elsie uh, Paul. We certainly uh, use ceremony, uh, smudges and seasonal sweats, you know, engaging in community events. The third one is an intentional uh, learning, as Karen said, around Aboriginal awareness. So annually we offer an Aboriginal awareness, which is mandatory training for any new staff that have come on board and a refresher for anybody that wants to come out. 
One of our newest initiatives with the funding from um, ECF has been our Knowledge Keepers Group. So we've identified staff from each of our program areas to act as our cultural liaisons, kind of the go-to people, and they're invited to come out quarterly and meet with our elder, as well as other, you know, elders from the community. LC connects us with other elders so that we're getting lots of different teachings because there's so much knowledge and so much to learn. I think really the end goal, like Karen said, we started three years ago, is to be able um, one day very soon to call ourselves an Indigenous serving organization that this Aboriginal awareness and learnings and teachings is integrated into the fabric of our agency, that it's a part of our practice model, and that our staff who are supporting our Indigenous mums really understand and are able to bridge them to culture because we know that culture and ceremony can help them connect to a beautiful, rich culture and help them to raise healthy, resilient babies. It sounds like there are a lot of elements to consider. I was wondering about your approach to include the many different peoples and cultures that live under the Indigenous banner, so to speak. I I can certainly say that it hasn't been an an easy or a short journey, like Nicole mentioned. I mean, it has been a number of years since we've been trying to launch and integrate uh, practices and knowledge that's going to really benefit our families. And we've learned a lot along the way. But I think what we've learned most importantly is to really have a dedicated resources and a person to own it and lead it and move it forward in, into the organization. And we know that over 50% of our families are Indigenous, so it, it is so important. And, and I think as a community, we've learned so much more from Truth and Reconciliation and uh, the value of this work and how it supports the mission of the organization. So we're deeply committed to it and have seen over the last year through staff and our participants, the, the difference it's made in the wellness, the, um, the progress that people are making in their lives. The model that we have set up is we know that it's not just one elder. Like you said, there's so many different First Nations people. There's so many different teachings that come from different elders. And not only that, but I think we recognize that it's the current staff in the organization that are really going to be able to carry this forward. It's very intentional that they are building their knowledge base and they are seen within our organization as the go-to person within their program area. What has the impact on your staff been so far? It's been mixed like anything new. You know, you have people that are a little bit unsure as to what the experience will be and they might be a little bit more reluctant to step in and as far as other people have. We have I mean, we have some Indigenous staff here, of course. They have been wonderful at really helping to develop a level of comfort and sharing their knowledge, which has helped. But I think for, well, I know for the most part, people feel that we're doing something of great value. So I think people are seeing that what we're doing is not just in isolation. There's there's lots being done in the community to support this kind of work as well. So I would say, yes, the staff are, I think, deeply... Um, interested in it. I think they value and appreciate the time that the agency provides to them to experience ceremony and to participate because in that, in turn, they take that back to the families that they're working with. Or even if it's our admin support staff, I mean, we're, we're all in contact with the families. The more that we can all appreciate and understand how culture supports them in their 
in their path of life and moving forward, all the better that we can have interactions with them and appreciate some of their life circumstances. And one of the things that we, you know, did quite intentionally was we focused our Diversity Day last year on First Nations and Aboriginal culture and so in the morning, it was a full day with all 70 staff. There were a few volunteers there. And in the morning, we had the blanket exercise done. And it's a very powerful educational tool. The staff were just, they were just like, wow. That was our morning exercise. You know, we incorporated traditional foods. We had drummers come out. We did some traditional crafting. And then the afternoon, we spent in circle talking about traditional child rearing practices and what those look like and as Karen said the importance of culture and ceremony and and talked about you know as allies walking that healing path with our indigenous brothers and sisters and so you know that really was a very powerful day and and we've been sort of building that momentum from there you had mentioned earlier that Tara isn't doing this work in isolation that there is a lot of community support. Could you talk a bit about your work with Indigenous Birth Alberta? Every Tuesday morning at Braemar School, Elsie starts the morning with a smudge, so all of the students, any of the school staff, and our Terra staff who are on site are invited to come out and start the day with a smudge. And then she goes into what we've called the beading and birthing circle. So Elsie is there, and one of our staff members is there, and then a representative from Indigenous Birthing Alberta tries to be there on a regular basis. It's a three-hour session, and it's really about that table that we all sit at as women, where we have our grandmothers and our aunties talking to us about our anxiety and our questions about this baby that is on the way. And so it's a very natural conversation where they can talk about breastfeeding, they can talk about some of the traditional things around the baby's belly button and, you know, singing them into the world and some of those beautiful Aboriginal traditions. While they're beating. While they're beating. And so, and the beating, like Mm -hmm. Elsie says, you know, it's a little too intimidating for some of our teen moms to sit in a colonial setting and say, so Karen, you know, Mm -hmm. what do you want to talk about today? Do you have any questions? So they're engaged with making earrings and they're learning that craft and they're making baby moccasins, but they're talking. How have the young parents you work with been responding to this program? They're very, very interested in the, the experiences of ceremony. For instance, this week we had uh, one of our Indigenous staff take out some individuals to do some medicine picking. Yeah, they're very interested in those kinds of experiences, I think. Some of them, you know, have not had much exposure to their culture. I think that's why it's so important that all of our staff, right, have some knowledge they can bring into their own conversations in their own ways with the young people that we come in contact with. And I think as I've watched it, I mean, in earlier days, you know, I'd go in and there'd be like two, you know, students in the room. And then as it progressed, I'd go in after the smudge and there'd be four or five of them. I mean, recently there's been times when I've dropped in when there's been between eight and 12 students that are sitting around beating and having conversation. And what we talked about yesterday is that consistency that, you know, we're here This is where you can come, you know, the elders available, you know, this is a safe place. And so 
I think that consistency is important, building the relationship. Now she says they know who she is. They're much more willing to open up. And we know as Tara that they're not going to be with us forever. And part of our job is to connect them with those Indigenous serving agencies so that, you know, when they leave us, they have those supports, you know, in place to continue to support them in their kind of cultural journeys. Thanks so much to Nicole Van Kuppefeld and Karen Mottershead for speaking with us about how Terra Centre is working to integrate Indigenous culture into their organization. If you'd like to find out more about the Terra Centre and how you can help them support teen parents, check out terracenter.ca. You can also find them on social media, at Terra Centre. And we'll be sure to have the links on our website. Be sure to check our show notes for links to Terra Centre's first interview with us on Episode 5, and to Legacy in Action, where we have an article about one father's story of how Terra helped his family. The Alberta Helping Animal Society helps Edmontonians living in poverty to care for their pets. They provide veterinary care at their clinic through house calls, including wellness exams, vaccines, spays and neuters, and education about animal care, all to help support the bond between human and animals. I sat down with Connie Varnhagen. I'm Connie Varnhagen. I'm the president of Alberta Helping Animals Society, and I'm also a registered veterinary technologist and a university professor. And Terry McCollum. My name is Terry McCallum, and I am the veterinary community coordinator with Alberta Helping Animals Society. To talk about why this work is so important. So tell us a little bit about Alberta Helping Animals Society. What, uh, what is it that you guys do, and why is it important? Well, Alberta Helping Animals Society supports the human-animal bond between vulnerable people and their pets. Our goal is to have healthy pets to promote healthy people. There's tons of research that shows the importance of companion animals, particularly dogs and cats, for psychological, emotional, and physical health of people. This is even more important when we are dealing with a disadvantage or a vulnerable population, people who are at risk for mental health problems, who have a very low income. They rely on their animals as their sole source of social support. So our goal is to support these animals in all ways, in terms of providing veterinary care at no cost to the client, helping them with food, helping them with medication, helping them with housing, behavior, all aspects that are associated with keeping healthy pets. You, you often hear that people think, you know, if you can't afford a pet, you shouldn't have one. What, what do you guys say to people who say that to you? Um, it's not really about whether they can afford it or not. It's not really about that. It's more about the therapy that that animal provides. Like these people already feel like they have nothing. They already feel like they're struggling and they're down and out. And, and these animals provide their therapy and their support for them. You know, that's that, that that's the person who's there when they, you know, get home from these horrible appointments they have to go to. They come home and they hug their cat or their dog and that's their sole emotional support for them. So we want to nurture that and realize that we are all one devastating illness, one addictions, one mental health issue away from living on the street. Some of our clients I know from the university, either they've had mental health issues or, or addictions or they've had other issues. This is you and me. And as a community, it's up to us as a community to help the entire community, and that includes the community of, of animals. So when you talk about the health and well-being of animals and the owners, what are some of the benefits that you're seeing from the services that you're providing? We provide a spay and neuter service and a vaccination service. So we have saved countless animals with serious infections in their uterus that they can get 
from um, not being spayed. We've saved countless male animals from prostate cancer that they can get from not being neutered. Um, Vaccination-wise, we've seen, I'm not sure how many parvo cases we've seen, so having them vaccinated saves them from that. Parvo is a potentially deadly intestinal disease. Parvo is just one of the, the viruses that we're working with. Kitties get upper respiratory infections, and cats breathe out of their nose only. So when their nose is stuffed up, they are more than miserable. They could die. So by providing vaccines, not only are we preventing this cat from developing terrible, terrible upper respiratory infections, but we're preventing our clients from going into complete emotional breakdown because their dear, dear family member is suffering. Who provides these services? So we are a mobile veterinary service, and we go out with volunteer vets. These are veterinarians who work 80 hours a week and still volunteer once a week, once every two weeks, once a month going out with us to homes. And for people who are marginally home, we might meet in a community center if it's warm on the street, somewhere else. Um, Volunteer technologists, veterinary technologists, volunteer community members, volunteer groomers, volunteer behavior experts. It's a community. It's a whole community project. And that's what's so important about it is that Terry is bringing the community together of both our clients and the professionals and paraprofessionals to help keep pets healthy. We had a client phone in, a very dear client that's been around from the beginning, and we hadn't heard from her for a little bit. And she phoned in and said that she had recently, like two days before, had become homeless. So she was sleeping on the street with her dog Jojo. And um, it had been a couple days, and it was in May, so it was still chilly through the night. And so I um, packed up a bag of people groceries, and I grabbed a bag of donated dog food, and I ran out there to meet her and um, gave her some groceries and some water and agreed to take JoJo and find some temporary housing for her until she was able to get back on her feet and get her back. So um, picked up JoJo, and I drove her down to Nate and saw... um, the veterinarian there who also volunteers some of her time for us, and she was willing to vaccinate and do a wellness exam on her. She went into temporary foster care for a few weeks, and when the client called and said that she'd found a place, I went and picked JoJo up and drove her back and dropped off the food and JoJo, and the client was just beside herself with glee. She was so grateful. Now, I was just going to ask, are most of the times when people phone you, are they? is this an emergency situation, or are they coming on a regular basis? I'd say that it's probably 60-40, leaning towards more emergencies. Now that our name is getting out there a lot more and people are starting to know who we are and starting to realize we provide free care, we're getting a lot more emergency calls coming in. So it is quite stressful on the organization, but Connie and I are a team and we handle it like superstars. So, Our biz- biggest excitement is in August, we will have a building. Really? We're going to be doing spays and neuters. We're going to be doing dentals. We probably won't be doing a whole lot of soft tissue surgeries and emergency surgeries. Those will still go to some other veterinary clinics because we can't exactly call a vet and say, hey, come on in. I've got a leg for you to set, right? They, we will be spending weekends doing those surgeries when our volunteers have time or when our volunteers can come in and do that. So we are so excited about that. We had a benefactor donate the building 
we're trying to raise the funds um, through charities such as PetSmart Charities and all of the veterinary industry who either s- provide supplies or medications or sometimes funding to support this really, really important initiative. So I want to thank you both for being here today and telling us a little bit about the program. I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in t- to hear about this. And this is a, an amazing service to hear about. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. If you'd like to reach out to the Alberta Helping Animal Society, you can find them online at www.ahas.ca. And we'll be sure to have the links up on our website. Edmonton Community Foundation has the privilege of working with some very generous donors who create endowment funds that help support a wide variety of charities throughout Edmonton. Today, we'd like to introduce you to Brian Link. Just a heads up, we recorded Brian's story outside, so you'll hear a bit of sound in the background. My name is Brian Link. It's the Link Foundation. When I was uh, approaching retirement or trying to build my wealth, um, I often became frustrated because it wasn't moving as quickly as I wanted it to. And I thought about all the things that were going wrong that were standing in my way of achieving that goal. Once I successfully retired and knew that we were going to be okay, I started to think about all of the things that could have gone wrong that didn't go wrong and all of the things that went right that I wasn't 100% responsible for and I was filled with a tremendous sense of gratitude. And because of that, I wanted to give back and the fund allowed me to give back in a way where I am absolutely certain that we will be giving money every year to a variety of charities. The other thing that I like about the foundation is the legacy that it leaves for our children. And that someday when we're gone, our children will be sitting around deciding what to do with the money from our fund. And those will be wonderful moments for our children to remember us in that way, and hopefully to be inspired by it as well. Thanks to Brian Link for sharing his story. If you're curious about how to create a fund of your own, we'll have some links up on our site to help get you started. Every episode, we like to give a shout out to one of the excellent podcasts from the Alberta Podcast Network. Andrew, you've been excited about one in particular. Yes, that's right. And I actually help record this podcast here in the Edmonton Community Foundation podcast studio. So this month, we'd like to shine the spotlight on the Undad podcast. The Undad podcast takes a candid and hilarious look at the wild world of parenting in the modern age. Hosted by journalist, writer, and performer Trent Wilkie, the interviews are frank and span a diverse range of parents. As a stay-at-home dad himself, Trent brings a unique perspective to the issues facing all parents as they try to navigate child-rearing in this bizarro modernity. If you're a parent thinking about becoming a parent, or just like to laugh until it hurts, the Undead podcast is definitely worth checking out. Just note that there's some strong language on the show, so if that's not your thing, don't say we didn't warn you. You can find the Undead podcast at theundead.com, on the Alberta Podcast Network, on the CKUA radio app, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. We'll also have a link to the show in our episode notes. We're nearing the end of our show, which means... News time! You know ECF loves to make it rain, so take a listen to these grant deadlines to see if you or someone you know might be eligible for some funding. First is a quick reminder of the Al Maurer Awards. These awards range from $500 to $2,500 for public service employees who demonstrate excellence and long-term commitment to the profession and are studying in a field that will promote public service excellence. Applications are due August 31st. And don't forget the Charmaine Letourneau Scholarships. The size of these awards vary, and they're for students who are deaf or hard of hearing. Applications are also due on August 31st. Next are community grants. These grants help charities in Edmonton and area with a variety of needs. If you're a registered charity, you can apply for up to $40,000 for your next big project. The next application deadline is September 1st. And finally, vital science grants. These grants provide up to $10,000 for initiatives that increase a sense of belonging to the community. The focus on belonging is in response to the 2017 Vital Signs Report released last year. 
We'll have a link to that on our website, and be sure to keep your eye out for Vital Science 2018, which will be released in the first week of October. Be sure to visit our website for more details about each grant. We'll have all the links in our show notes at thewellendowedpodcast.com. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Well Endowed Podcast. Thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please be sure to share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Leaving a review is a big help, and we always appreciate your feedback. Thanks for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonking and Andrew Paul. Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed. I could go on and on about Don. He loved fishing, for example. We were very competitive, actually. Our favorite, favorite thing to do is to go to a lake that we were members of. We used to go up there and fish, but we're both very competitive. So, you know, who got the first one, who got the biggest one, um, all that sort of stuff came into play. And we could be out there for hours, and that was our favorite thing. And ultimately, I would win. (laughs) I can hear him laughing.